we never have truly faced ourselves, right? We've never, we never have had a public dialogue around the mass atrocities that took place in this country. And I think that legacy continues until today. And until we face ourselves, I think that it's going to be really hard to undo much of what we've done. Hello and welcome. This is the March 2020 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. This podcast is about a supplement of the AJPH published in January 2020 and dedicated to the public health dimensions of mass incarceration. The supplement covers many intersections of mass incarceration and public health, but in this podcast, I focus on a rarely discussed and studied consequence of incarceration, its effect on the relatives of people with a history of incarceration. My interviewees are Lauren Brinkley and David Cloud, guest editors of The Supplement, Lisa Bowleg, who was AJPH associate editor in charge of The Supplement, and Martin Lejoux, who is the principal investigator of a Mexican study about the health of the relatives of incarcerated people. I'm Alfredo Morabia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are February 5th, 2020. Let's first examine with Lisa Bowleg, who is Professor of the Department of Psychology of the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., what it means practically to define mass incarceration as a social structural driver of health inequity. Hey, good day, Lisa. Good afternoon. Why is mass incarceration a social structural driver of health mm-hmm. inequity? Because it's a structured in the history of racism in the U.S. We know the vast inequities in incarceration in in the US you know black men six times more likely to be incarcerated than white men and that younger black men like those who are around 18 and 19 12 times more likely compared to their white counterparts even though they're a really tiny percent of the population that that just doesn't make sense and so there is a structural component that is rooted in systemic racism. And so that's what I mean. It's really about bringing a critical perspective to the topic of mass incarceration. And this leads us actually to uh, how do you study a social structural driver? Mm, That's a good question. You know, it's a way of thinking and being curious about that data. For example, The Census Bureau and a variety of other federal agencies have just reams and reams of data that that are structural. And those of us who are trained in these individual levels need to get up to speed very fast about how we assess structure beyond what people tell us about. So I think also that there is a dire need for multidisciplinary collaboration. I mean, so there are disciplines that do this far better 
than, you know, people, many people in certainly my discipline, psychology, and some in public health. And so there, I think there needs to be a collaboration with people like political scientists and historians and economists so that to get us out of this sort of individual um, measurement trap. It's a multi-level approach. And of course, you might imagine there are a whole host of methodological issues about how do you then combine this data, right? So if you have structural level data about, oh, I don't know, residential segregation, how then do you combine that with sort of an individual self-report measure that you may have gotten from your participants about discrimination? So there are a whole host of methodological issues, but there are lots of people, particularly in public health, who are really doing some really interesting work about multi-level measures and structural um, measures. I'm thinking about Mark Hudson-Buller's work on um, structural stigma for gay men, and he's looking at, you know, anti-gay or trans laws and policies. And there are ways that people are starting to analyze structural level data with individual level or even community level. You know, I, I'm i a researcher, obviously, and a, you know, a federally funded researcher, but I, I'm often frustrated because part of me knows we don't need another study. You know, I don't need a study to, to, I don't need to run, you know, multivariate analyses to tell me what the connection will be about this group of people in this neighborhood, you know, where racism in and inequality, income inequality is rampant and what their health outcomes are going to be or how that's related to incarceration. Right. And so it really is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we we really don't need. But, you know, I I do know because I do. I also have training in public policy and I worked in policy for a long time. And one of the things I learned was if it's not documented for for policymakers and, you know, peer reviewed journals and stuff like that, there are many ways it's not real. And so that's the role of research many times to document things that we already know with a hope of changing the status quo. Now with Lauren Brinkley and David Cloud, let's try to figure out why the current incarceration process in the U.S. is qualified as massive. What is the actual magnitude and how many people are closely affected by it? Lauren Brinkley Rubinstein is with the Center of Health Equity Research and she's an assistant professor in the Department of Social Medicine, both at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. David Cloud is with the Rolling School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta and with the Amend Program at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. I mean, so I think on any given day, there's roughly 2.2 million people incarcerated. But it depends how you slice the pie, right? There's prison and then there's jail. What's the difference? Prison is basically somewhere where you go, you go to court and you're sentenced to time behind bars. So that's generally where you're going to go spend a longer period of time, usually longer than a year or so. You may also go to prison if you, let's say you're on parole, you get out of prison and you have some kind of violation, they may send you back. 
Jails are more transient by nature. That's usually the vast majority of people who are in jail are there pre-trial, meaning they have not been convicted. Um, they're waiting to see a judge. They're often held up because they can't afford to pay their bail. They're often held up, um, hold, held up because the court systems are overburdened and there's lengthy delays. So jails are kind of a separate piece than prisons. And I think it's important to look at those things together, but also separate. Do, do we know the breakdown between jail and prison? The numbers that usually cite like nationally or, you know, it's really about admissions rather than individual people. It's easier to pinpoint how many individuals in any given day are in prison. The jail population, I think, is really um, more about admissions. I think there's about 11 million a year. And that's, yeah, I mean, again, there's some kind of overlap between those two, but... I just want to talk a little bit about probation and post-release yeah. parole populations too, because the you know there are double the number of people mm. uh, who are on community supervision in in you know in the communities where they live, and so the carceral state extends itself into the community where there's surveillance of people who are also you know not technically incarcerated but definitely monitored. Can we estimate the number of people who are connected in some way to this mass incarceration? Research shows us that. When an individual goes to prison or jail, it doesn't just affect them, it affects their children, it affects their partners, it affects their entire communities. And so that is a really important part of the special issue too, is trying to think about this community and familial impact that incarceration has that I think is really hard to put an exact number on, but is obviously such an important and massive part of the problem. You know, when we think about community impact, there's lots of different ways to think about it. We can try to put a number on the massive number of people who have been impacted, but it, there's also resources that have been taken out of these communities and also put into the carceral system that have not been put back into these communities. And so it's such a, a multifactorial effect that it is almost impossible to imagine how large it is. What are those resources? Can you specify? Yeah. And so if you think about schools, community development, parks, places to be in those communities, jobs in those communities. Many people are put in jails because of mental health, because of substance use issues. And so we see a massive need in these communities for, for treatment resources um, that aren't there. And I think that's a major point to make as we have come into this movement of decarceration. And there's a lot of reform efforts going around to try to not have jail be the answer to these issues. But if we don't have those resources in the communities, that that creates a major problem wherein if people don't have re those resources, they just cycle back to the jail system. So we need really comprehensive community resources. So let me make sure I understand. What you say is that there are a lot of resources that are currently invested in jails and prisons rather than in community infrastructure, health, education, training, etc. Yes. That would that would facilitate the reintegration, etc. Yeah, that's a very good point. What's the magnitude of this mass incarceration? Why is it? The term mass incarceration just conveys it's ingrained in the DNA of this country from the founding, um, from the evolution of slavery, racial oppression, economic struggle. All those things have this continuity um, and it's just, it's a crisis. I mean, I think um, it's something that we, there's many issues that we have not dealt with as a nation. And as a result, we have this phenomenon of mass incarceration that touches every, you know, every corner of, of our society.
We saw with Lorraine and David that mass incarceration implicates the relatives of the people who are incarcerated. Professor Martin Lajoux and his team in Mexico have actually studied the cardiovascular health of Mexican women, comparing women who have and women who don't have an incarcerated relative. Martin Lejoux is with the Center for Research in Population Health at the National Institute of Public Health in Mexico City, or in Spanish, El Centro de Investigación en Salud Poblacional, Instituto Nacional de Salud Pública, Ciudad de México. So wh what are the main reasons for incarceration in Mexico? Like the U.S., Mexico has used incarceration increasingly as a way to control crime, especially drug-related crimes. So actually, currently in Mexico, one in five incarcerated individuals in federal prisons are, are serving uh, drug-related sentences. Can you give me examples of how it is, you know, how is the daily life of people who uh, have relative incarcerated uh, in Mexico? So, unfortunately, the prison conditions in Mexico are, are very uh, challenging. A lot of the times, people who are incarcerated do not have sufficient food or do not have sufficient basic needs covered, like you know, having basic hygiene products. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times the, the family members may have to, in, in addition to the burden that represents having to support financially their, the family, they also have to support financially the person who is incarcerated and typically will have to uh, go once a week Uh, to the, the prison to bring uh, food, to probably bring uh, money that is necessary to ensure the safety of their family member and to ensure that they can pass on these uh, basic products to their family mm -hmm. member. And is the population affected, like, you know, in the U.S., it's mostly people of color. Is this, can you find some uh, discrimination of this type in Mexico? Yes, there's certainly a lot of disparities in terms of uh, who are the individuals that are incarcerated. There's important social disparities and also some ethnic disparities. So in, in the state of Chiapas, for instance, 50% of incarcerated individuals are indigenous. Can you summarize the main finding of that study? Again, it's a, a cross-sectional study. We did collect data on between 2013 and 2016 because these are people who were asking individuals whether they had ever had an incarcerated family member. We honed in on cardiovascular disease because we had a, a robust measure of that outcome. Mm -hmm. so, so the idea was that uh, these family were... Uh heavily stressed and that's why they could have uh, cardiovascular consequences of being relatives of incarcerated people? Exactly right. We found that family member incarceration was associated to perceived stress. And we also found that it was associated to cortisol levels, which is a, a robust biomarker of, of chronic stress. This is something that has been hypothesized, but we're able to measure it directly. We're also able to see that women with incarcerated family members were more likely to smoke, to be obese, to have diabetes, relative to women who did not report this experience. 
And one of the strongest and more interesting results here is that after taking into account different risk factors for cardiovascular disease, women who reported having had a family member, an incarcerated family member, had 41% higher odds of, of cardiac atherosclerosis relative to women who did not. And also, we were able to conduct a mediation analysis that, that suggests that uh, the association we found between family member incarceration and cardiovascular disease was in part mediated by stress and uh, adiposity, which is indicator of unhealthy lifestyle. Can you explain that mass incarceration have this long-lasting effect on the physical health of affected families? Again, there's a recognition that incarceration is a highly stressful event for families, specifically for women who carry the burden of caretaking for the individual who is incarcerated, but also dealing with the family consequences of having someone uh, incarcerated. So mass incarceration may have chronic impact on, on, on the families of individuals who are incarcerated through stressful lifestyles and lifestyle choices that are associated to, to, to stress, that then having an impact on uh, their cardiovascular. These interviews explain why mass incarceration has become a central preoccupation of entire communities of color in the U.S. As discussed in my October 2019 podcast, mass incarceration is another manifestation of the failed transition out of slavery in the 19th century, which has resulted in using repression and force instead of economic and public health infrastructure, to control, instead of reinserting, the uprooted populations. There are currently 2.2 million people in prisons and 11 million admissions per year in jails. As a result, the children, partners and parents of millions of people suffer from the absence of their loved ones, the poor treatment they are receiving, and the material and financial burden that incarceration imposes on families. After incarceration, reintegration is difficult and its stigma lingers. These collateral effects of incarceration translate into chronic stress and chronic diseases, such as heart diseases, as illustrated in the Mexican female teacher study, altogether, mass incarceration is a social problem with structural causes that drives to health inequities. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob composed and interpreted the pastiche of a classic folk song about incarcerated people. Francis plays the guitar and yours truly the harmonica parts. 
This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on the AJPH website for persons with hearing disabilities. That's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you.